Hey, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and today I'll be discussing brand acquisition and scaling with Alexi Pukowski. Alexi is the CEO and co-founder of a vertical e-commerce platform in the health and wellness industry called AlphaWell Brands. Here's our interview now. Lexi, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So, you know, I've read a couple interviews with you and about you. There was one really good one that I read from, I think it was called Get Daily that you did that gave a little background on you and your company. And I kind of want to know how Alpha Well Brands started out. To my knowledge, it was originally called Alpha Green Groups. Yeah, absolutely. So we started actually as a fund very 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 early um and that's just because i spent 10 years in finance initially in investment banking and then as an investor you know after looking at 50 different companies in the cannabis space we ended up saying look cbd as a marketplace and then later on thc is the way forward um and so we launched alpha green io initially at marketplace which was a drop shipping marketplace that meant that we connected via an api key to lots of different shopify woocommerce and magento brands ultimately we scaled we scaled mostly through seo but the reality was legalization was much much slower than we expected and we had to show better numbers and we said look why don't we start acquiring other brands outside cannabis as well. And also because we were so successful with SEO, we ended up launching an SEO agency as a subsidiary as well. And therefore we are a consumer wellness brand now with an agency arm. And so that's, yeah, how we evolved from Alpha Green Group to Alpha Well Brands. And that's great. I actually read that, you know, your goal was to become, you know, the UK's number one marketplace for CBD, which you actually ended up achieving in only like six months time. So, you know, one of my first questions that I have for you, how did you achieve that so quickly? It sounds like SEO optimization was part of it. And what were your metrics to determine that you achieved that goal? Because that sounds kind of vague to me personally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, the number one metric, we used products and brands listed on our marketplace rather than necessarily GMV or revenue. It's very difficult in a private market to, to say whether you are the largest in terms of financials. Having said that, we were actually very likely also the largest in terms of financials, but that's just because everybody else sucked, not because we were great. Yeah, the way we achieved the, the number of, of brands and products, we, we built a very strong and stable infrastructure. And we were also present in 11 different European markets, which allowed us also to onboard many other non-UK brands. And then in the UK, we started off with very strong PR. And so a lot of the brands out there got to know about us fairly quickly. We were at a lot of different conferences. We sponsored one large conference as well, uh, where we obviously were, were a speaker as well. Overall, yeah, lots of PR, lots of advertising, so to say, in, in, in kind of like conferences. And then, of course, SEO, right? Because what happened is we ranked really well for long tail keywords initially, and then we also ranked really well for branded search. A lot of the brands, again, you have to understand that in cannabis and CD, a lot of the brands cannot well nobody can advertise on on facebook or google so every time brand owner 
Google CBD gummies and saw we have to list on that marketplace. And so we had a lot of inbound from a lot of brands as well. No, that's great. I mean, that's an extremely impressive approach to it. I think one of the other things that impressed me, your approach is keeping it a bit niche, I think is how you how you worded it in one interview that I read is that there are a couple different ways that you can kind of approach things, right? So I think the way that you articulated it is you essentially have a niche brand in the health and wellness space, right? So instead of trying to do it all a little bit, kind of like maybe an Amazon does, you focus a lot of your energy on creating an extremely high quality and impressive niche catalog. I was wondering how how you could speak to that a little bit because I have a follow-up question as to why that is. You know, Walmart's successful because they do it all. So why would why go in the opposite direction? I would say every time there is a marketplace or some sort of platform, it starts very broad and then there is the disintermediation or I guess like the specialization of subcategories, right? If you look at Craigslist, that was very, very general. You could hire people through it. You can rent properties through it. You could whatever, buy secondhand stuff from it, right? And then later on, you had Airbnb and you had Upwork and you had whatever, eBay, right? And now you have specialized Upworks in every single domain expertise. Airbnb has like tens of competitors in, you know, family rental homes, single rental homes, offsite retreats with teams, you know, luxury destinations, vetted destinations, right? And same with marketplaces. So if you look at Walmart and Airbnb, they're very, very generalist. And if you look at a lot of successful marketplaces, uh, they're very, very specialist uh, when it comes to pets. You have Chewy, right? And then you have almost like in every single country, you have a specialist marketplace in a certain domain. In B2B, you have lots of different marketplaces. In cannabis, you have Weed Maps and you have Leafly in the US, right? So the way we thought about it was an Amazon or Walmart wouldn't go into cannabis because they have more to lose than they have to gain. And therefore, let's play that niche And then, of course, let's expand from that niche down the line. No, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And one of the other things that I found interesting upon doing a little little research on you is that you are still even selective in what goes into that niche. So you guys have at AlphaWell Brands, it definitely seems in your product selection that you take a more holistic approach. So there's not as much focus on maybe fitness products like dumbbells or like treadmills or anything like that. I guess I'm curious as to, despite the fact that those products might fall under the health and wellness umbrella, how do you determine what products you should and shouldn't sell? Yeah, that's more under the Alpha Well brand story now. And so the first acquisition we made was a scented candles brand called 96 North. And the reason we made that acquisition was... It is a very emotional category, so scented candles or aromatherapy in general, and it's a recurring purchase, right? So if you look at the lifetime value of a customer, it is much, much bigger if you have a customer returning to your product rather than a dumbbell or yoga mat, right, where you might buy it once and then you might maybe buy it again in two, three, four years' time. If you still do yoga, right? Or if you still do dumbbells, right? And so when we look at brands, we look at brands who have an emotional connection with the customer and therefore you can build up some sort of brand 
The second point is it has to be a recurring purchase. So it could be something like, you know, matcha tea or chocolate. It could also be certain skincare areas as well. I mean, we would probably not go into kind of like certain niche beauty areas, but we would definitely go into certain skincare slash wellness areas where again, you have a a recurring element. We also look at global appeal. So we would probably stay away from a very, very local trend of local product because our specialty is taking a brand from the US into the European and the UK market as we did with 96 North. And so we want that global appeal there as well. And that's pretty much it. I mean, of course, we look at profitable brands only. This is obviously, uh, this became even more important in the last six to 12 months uh, than, than it was previously, where a lot of D2C brands were just basically growing in a very unprofitable way, growth at all costs. And for us, it's very important to have a very profitable base, which we then scale via an omni-channel approach using, you know, different levers such as SEO, such as, you know, offline retail, and as well as other marketplaces. Sure. So you're you're acquiring brands that already have a base of profitability is what I'm hearing you say. You're not trying to gather these brands and create profitability for you or anything like that. That's kind of a required fundamental foundation for you guys. Exactly, exactly. And that's why we primarily look at Amazon brands initially. And this is again, like this is like taking a lot of the lessons learned from the marketplace, which of course was very unprofitable initially. We made it profitable down the line. But again, there is there is like a limit in how much you can scale with CBD alone. And we have to basically be patient till THC is is a you know legal uh, substance in, let's say, you know, globally, or at least in our core market. And we then said, well, you know, we are really good in scaling brands, but let's only look at brands which are profitable because you almost have some sort of product market fit and product channel fit there. And you can do much more with that brand without necessarily raising a lot of money. Sure, that totally makes sense. And one of the things I think of when it, when it sounds like your primary responsibility is is scaling up is the difficulty of scaling up, but at the same time, keeping it up. So is it more difficult to kind of, you know, bootstrap a brand and scale it up? Or is it more difficult to continue to thrive at a consistent level? Because, you know, in, in business, they say, you know, adapt or die, grow or die. So part of me thinks that the latter is even more complicated. Could you kind of expound on that for me? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And there is also a saying, getting rich is one thing and then staying rich is another one, right? Well, the way we look at it is that because we are scaling a brand in a profitable way, which means we do actually stay away from Instagram, Facebook, and certain Google ads as an approach which usually are very, very unprofitable, at least in the beginning, um, it's actually much easier for us to stay at a very high level and kind of like at a good level. Because for example, one of our core drivers is SEO, right? And SEO for us with our new Optima uh, growth agency, it's all about, it's like CapEx, right? Like we invest into content and that content, similar to what you do with podcasts, right? Once you have all the published content out there, you have some, you know, unique visitors coming always. And the more of that content you publish, the more visitors you get, but you kind of have a stable base. 
Similarly, on Amazon, once you achieve a certain review count, we're like more than 1,000 reviews now, super high rating, we don't need to run ads to sell the product because we already rank organically. So that's how we think about scaling. It's more long-term based than the short-term. I mean, it's kind of what I'm hearing you say. Exactly. It's more long-term based. Exactly, exactly. And then what we usually do, again, differently to, to many other people, is we always try to identify another growth channel which might not have had the influx of brands. So for example, you know, in our category of aromatherapy, Etsy is still an interesting channel or Pinterest is an interesting channel. And driving external traffic to Amazon via Pinterest is something not many people are doing yet. While, for example, TikTok is becoming a very saturated channel. The social media space, that's something that you you pretty actively stay away from, is what is what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. That's interesting because uh, you know a lot of people in in the space lean heavily into that, and it's just fascinating to me. You know, I, I worked in TV in a niche market, and so we leaned pretty heavily in social media. And it's kind of just interesting seeing how different industries and different you know people approach their marketing strategy. I think it's really really impressive, Alexi. So um, I wanted to ask you how necessarily to raise funds for your e-commerce brand. So you come in and buy a lot of these profitability company or these profitable companies. How do they necessarily raise the funds to become profitable, I guess? Well, a lot of them are actually bootstrapped where, again, it's a, it's a function of the channel they picked, right? So when you talk about TV, when you talk about social media, you're talking about companies or brands who have a certain budget already, who most likely have been either around for 10, 20 years or have raised a lot of money and are extremely unprofitable and the share price is probably down 90% as we speak right now. But the companies we acquire, the brands we acquire, have been usually run by you know a person or two or three people bootstrapped because of the love to the product, for example. And then they basically reached a certain ceiling where they say, look, for us to expand in Europe or for us to like put more budget into it, we will need to raise money. We don't want to raise money. We don't know how to raise money. And therefore, we want to rather sell the brand, you know, get a nice check and then maybe start another brand, right? And so we only acquire brands which, which again, are, are most likely have been run bootstrapped. We would definitely look at brands who got into some sort of distress situation which maybe had some investors before, but most likely they wouldn't be profitable because otherwise they wouldn't be selling because if they would be you know, selling while being profitable, the investors would probably not allow them to sell because the amount of money they could probably get is probably not a lot. And therefore the investors wouldn't get the money back. And you have an interesting perspective as kind of like former VC, right? So you're kind of on both sides of the ball now a little bit in terms of being able to see the different type of spaces that you've operated in. And and I guess my question is how you've been able to use your experience as a, as a venture capitalist currently now, and what are kind of some of the challenges between both of those two roles or the differences? Yeah. So the experience I used very bluntly was to not raise from VC. You know, that was my experience as a VC because I knew that a venture capital fund 
wants uh, at least a 10x on their investment, right? And we all know that building a brand takes many, many years. If you look at, you know, the brands out there, you know, Nike, Hermes, Bulgari, you know, LVMH, you know, they, they all range from 20, 30 years to, you know, 80, 100 years in terms of history. So if you look at the types of brands like All Birds or whatever, you know, being created fairly recently, you know, they're extremely unprofitable and they're, and they're like pretty much in distress at the moment. Again, if you look at the share price, if you look at an environment where you cannot get just funding easily and none of the investors, unless they did some secondaries, made any money. So the way I was thinking about it was, well, you know, let's raise from angels and family offices instead who are happy with, you know, three to five times their money in terms of return and who will not pressure me into raising money every, whatever, eight, nine months, who will not pressure me into spending all of that money at once, right? To show some sort of growth metric, but who are very happy to give us a bit more time and like see profitability rather than necessary growth. And again, like we've been growing 250% year on year for the last three years. So we've been growing at a very good rate, but still not burning all the money we had, right? And so I guess like the number one lesson learned as a VC was, well, 90% of companies who raise from VCs shouldn't actually be raising from VCs because it just adds a very negative sentiment and layer to your whole business journey. And what you really want is you want supportive investors who are in line with your understanding of how to build a business. And that's basically more family offices and angels. And I think the recent trend and the recent downturn in the consumer and e-com space have actually taught a lot of entrepreneurs that they should have not raised from VC, right? They should have probably raised from, you know, family offices, angels, or again, if you can go into the non-dilutive funding routes, such as, you know, revenue-based financing or venture cap, venture debt capital, which basically allows you to, to still remain pretty much, you know, the sole owner of the business and basically grow your business with non-dilutive funding options. No, that's smart. It's interesting hearing like a like a XVC kind of kind of say, maybe, maybe it's not the best idea anymore. One of the themes that I, I continue to hear in your answers and the way that you talk, Alexi, is is long-term solutions, right? So I think part of these struggles, especially early on for a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners, is I got to make a dime by the end of the year, you know, or else I won't be able to have my business. I'm from a background where I worked in a lot of restaurants and restaurants are probably the most risky businesses that you can own. I don't know how many times I've worked in one and it was closed within six months or something like that. I guess the root of what I'm trying to ask is how do you focus on the long term? Because that's the goal. That's the end goal at the end of the day, while you're still figuring out how to kind of operate on a day-to-day basis? I mean, what, what's kind of the strategy of being able to do both at the same time a little bit? Well, I guess we always want to show and see growth, right? And of course, it doesn't always happen. Uh, there are months where, you know, we might run out of inventory for a certain variation, i.e. scent, which was like, for example, a hero product. And then we suddenly see our revenue drop, even though you know, everything else is doing extremely well and, and even better. But yeah, it just happens that, I don't know, we, we bought too little of a certain product and therefore we kind of like see some 
some drop, right? Uh, but ultimately, of course, it's kind of like still managing the financials that, you know, at least every quarter you're growing on a consistent basis. You're, you can see that your customer acquisition costs are coming down or at least staying the same. And as long as you have returning customers as well, over time, you are just seeing a linear growth. We did raise money. So we have cash, which we use to launch new products. So we experiment with new product ideas. We experiment with new, I mean, for example, we're about to launch read diffusers uh, on top of the center cans we have. We're about to launch new, new scents as well. And we're also expanding into new geographies, right? So there is basically a lot of a lot of that. And then again, like I think the this about our business overall, which is again very different to some of the businesses who attract a lot of funding, is the fact that we have this agency arm, right? And the agency arm is is profitable as well. And that kind of like allows us to be slightly maybe more risky even in pushing the consumer brand as well, because we know we get cash from the agency arm to fund some of the growth of the brand as well. And you use the word that's very important, I think, in long-term business decisions, and that's experiment. I think the ability to do trials and experiments to try to reacclimate what your brand looks like and how to create growth in a in a brand or a company is important and a lot of times someone has like an idea for how their company should operate, right? And they keep trying it over and over again expecting different results because that's kind of that was the game plan all along. So, do you think trial and error is something that you have to learn to put into practice the longer that you're in business? Or do you think it's something that you should kind of be open to trying as soon as you're opening up a brand or, or, or attempting some actual scaling up yourself? Yeah. I, I mean, the way I think about it is that you have 100% of your activity and you can break it out into 70, 20, and 10. 70% is the stuff which already works and you just double down and double down on the same stuff, right? 20% is basically stuff which you are working on where you know you're running certain experiments and they might fail they might succeed but you know it's 20% of your budget or slash your activity so you know it wouldn't kill your business and then 10% is what i call rocket ship or like blue sky experiments right so this is basically where we say okay let's try something let's try something like completely crazy here but that might really change the business, right? And that's, for example, I don't know, like collaboration with certain influencers or creating a certain completely new category uh, where we might be like the first ones to kind of like play in this game, right? Now, this is just 10% of the activity and the budget. So it's the same way as Google operates, right? You have Google, which is obviously search and cloud. And then there is, you know, Google X, and that's like a lot of these blue sky experiments. And that 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 the same way we approach consumer brand. That's great. That's an excellent answer. I think that's a really easy way to kind of formulaic, I don't know, to to break it down, you know, in that 70, 2010. I I, I really appreciate that. I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and ask you what what's an Amazon brand aggregator and how can they buy your e-commerce brand? Well, to some extent, we are an Amazon brand aggregator in a sense, right? Except that we 
do not use debt at the moment because it's extremely expensive and margins for most brands actually suffer because of supply chain risks and geopolitical issues out there. And also we don't really aggregate many brands at once. We rather look at, you know, buying one or two brands per year and then like 10x a brand in terms of growth rather than keeping it flat and then just growing because of acquisitions only. But in simple terms, you know, Thrasio was the inventor of the Amazon aggregated business model in 2018 when they started acquiring Amazon seller sellers, so FBA brands fulfilled by Amazon brands, which basically, you know, resulted in them owning more than 300 brands now under one roof, employing, I don't know, 4,000 people or something like that. And then massively failing, failing to IPO, failing to SPAC. And they obviously alive because they raised so much cash now, but the business operations are a total mess because basically they, they didn't manage to integrate all of the, you know, hundreds of brands they bought, but as a mathematical concept, buying at a whatever, four or five times multiple, and then trading at uh, whatever, 20 times multiple, it made a lot of sense, but just mathematically, not in practical terms. I appreciate that. And um, I guess, what are your long-term goals as a brand, as Alpha Well brands? What are kind of your metrics in terms of establishing growth? Because we've kind of talked about how you acquire and scale other different brands and everything. So, but for you and your brand, what are you guys trying to, you know, achieve in five, 10, 15 years time, something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. Uh, look, I mean, for us, it's about long-term sustainable growth and having a really exciting portfolio of cool brands in the, you know, wellness, emotional connection space. What it means is in two years time, we want to have five brands, you know, which range anywhere between two to 10 million in revenues per brand, which are obviously growing, you know, 200, 300% per year, which allow us to A, cross-sell some of these products to the audiences of the various brands. And this is why we're being kind of like a sector specialist. Equally, we want to be a global house of brands. So, you know, our whole team is completely remote. It's very international. And obviously, U.S. market is actually our largest market by far, but we, we want to expand uh, beyond as well. And we want to be an omni-channel player, right? So we still think that, you know, offline and retail is not that. It, it was obviously, you know, had a lot of attention during COVID, you know, understandably, but it's still out there. You know, there are a lot of people who shop offline and who want this discovery process to happen uh, in a retail store. So so we are still very bullish on that as well. Uh, we want to work with lots of influencers as well and collaborate and create maybe, you know, collaborations as well for our brands as well. And then ultimately, look, I mean, we have an amazing agency and we actually see a lot of stuff out there, which, you know, be it when we experiment with our own brands and we can then help other brand owners to, you know, to launch their brand or to, to scale their brand and vice versa, right? Like the visibility we're gaining by working with so many other brands helps us to also scale our own brand. No, that's great. And, and and I think one thing that stands out to me is Debutify operates as an international employed company. For example, I'm reporting live from Virginia in the United States right now. 
And, you know, my boss, she's in the Philippines. And it's it's kind of amazing how that works. I've never worked in a space like that before. And despite its complications or obstacles, what are some of the benefits that you can see in operating with uh, international employees? Yeah, well, the, the main benefit is access to global talent, right? So, you know, you are not limited. If you're a German brand, you're not limited to just hire people who are based in Germany or even like in your city, right? And again, I, I grew up in Germany. So I can tell you the, the pool of amazing digital experts there is not as big as, for example, you know, in certain, you know, again, US states or the Philippines or Eastern Europe or whatever, right? So you can really, really uh, access the global talent. Uh, the second is you can go international much, much faster because again, you have the access of global talent and you don't tell them to, okay, come to my office and be located in that city. It's also asynchronous work in terms of people work in their own time and their own basically pace to some extent. So at AlphaWell Brands, again, you know, I don't mind if you want to do your whatever fitness session or tennis session or whatever during the day, because I know that, you know, you're going to just work afterwards. And if you're based on some sort of different time zone, as long as you attend our stand-up call, you know, it's fine. Like, again, I don't need you to be in the same time zone. So I, I, it just allows for super good flexibility. And right now I'm actually based in Lisbon and tomorrow the team arrives for an offsite because every quarter we do an offsite somewhere nice where people fly in. And basically meet each other and like work from a nice villa somewhere. So that's kind of like the benefit. No, that's very cool. And and, and one of the things that I enjoy about it is, you know, it's e-commerce. So if you want to operate in a digital world, a global world, it's kind of like putting your money where your mouth is a little bit, where it's like think big, play big. And and I, I really appreciate that. Look, I, I really appreciate talking with you, Alexi. I mean, I, I think you're an extremely knowledgeable and, and charismatic cat. And I, I think what you're what you're doing for these brands, I mean, there's a certain sense of like altruism to it, in, in my opinion. I know that it's it's a business, don't get me wrong, but it's kind of nice to have such a mutually beneficial relationship with these brands that you're acquiring. Do they, I don't know, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, do they see it that way? Do, do you consider it as, as some sort of version of altruism? Because it is feeding the economy. It's not just like you and your legion trying to grow your brand. I mean, you're you're continuously bringing other people into this project. What sort of, I don't know, morality plays into, into that? Yeah. I mean, look, the, the morality and the, the alignment is that we know how to scale and we help people to still see the child grow up so to say, right? Yeah. And look, I mean, we we even we are playing now with an approach where, you know, if if the owner wants to stay on, for example, and you know, have a much longer earnout and like a much larger percentage still, you know, of the business or the brand owned by that person. You know, we are, we are now considering that as well in terms of a strategy. Um, look, I, I wouldn't probably call it altruism, but yeah, it's definitely, we definitely add to society. You know, we create jobs, we create amazing products, you know, they're all like natural organic products so far. Um, and yeah, we were super excited. That's amazing. That's really cool. So I wanted to um, 
switch gears just a little bit and ask, um, you're a busy guy, you're traveling, you got a big company, you got a lot of work. What do you do to retain your sanity? Yeah, so retaining sanity is the number one factor for, for you know growing a business in a sustainable way. Well, especially, excuse me to not to cut you off, but in, in terms of running a health and wellness focused brand, I feel like that's extremely important is that sort of balance to be able to have a guy like you who who understands the the health and wellness aspect of it. Business is stressful, man. So I, I'm sorry not to cut you off. I just kind of made that connection at the same time. Totally. Yeah. So I, I pretty much do sports every day. So in the morning, um, be it you know running or tennis or going to the gym. So, you know, usually you know, do the gym three times a week, go for a run once a week, maybe do the tennis two to three times a week. And then, yeah, maybe squeeze in a yoga session or something like that. So yeah, sports is definitely important. Uh, healthy nutrition. And then look, I mean, surrounding yourself with smart people, you know, look, I have an amazing wife as well. So that, that helps as well to focus and to kind of like, you know, go, go off a, a stormy day back to the port, the kind of safe harbor. You know, that's how I kind of like look at it. So yeah, it's it's very important. Um, you know, you can achieve it, you know, with a partner, with the friends, or with your family. But I think some, you know, like that emotional safe harbor has to be there. And then equally, you know, you need to keep healthy, you need to uh stay stay healthy. And you know, it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. And therefore, you know, it's very important to make sure that your body and your mind do not run out of steam. No, that's great. I'm a big fan of all that stuff. I mean, balance is the key. You know, a lot of a lot of people who operate in the business space suffer from burnout very quickly, I've I've found. And it's just really insightful to hear that coming coming from uh, an expert as yourself. I guess kind of what, what one of my last questions would be, how does a, um, a brand look for acquisition? So do you guys... I mean, we talked about it pr- pretty in depth, but when it comes to the actual material acquisition, you guys will headhunt some brands and then others will come to you for acquisition. Like what's kind of, I don't know, the immediate vetting process look like, I, I guess, to any brand that's trying to get acquired by Alpha Well brands, consider this the very first factor, you know? Yeah. Well, I guess be ready to sell, right? Because I think if you just, thinking about selling and you're not ready, maybe don't sell, don't start the process because a lot of the buyers might get frustrated with you not being prepared. What does ready mean? Well, ready means having your ducks in a row. That means, you know, your financials documented, your data room maybe set up properly and, you know, your your unit economics properly, you know, worked worked out, so to say, that you can basically show a prospective buyer, why it makes sense to acquire you and put more money into the brand and scale it um, rather than, oh, I want to sell because it's a dying business. And if I sell, I might get some money out of it or something like that, right? Because of course, people figure out if it's a dying business or not. It all comes out in the wash. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Now, in terms of process, yeah, you, you described it quite well there. You know, there are a lot of brands who come to us or go to a broker. And then the broker comes to us and vice versa. We run a lot of email campaigns where we reach out to good brands, which we filter out using certain analytical tools. When, you know, we look at certain categories on Amazon, 
we then find their emails or find their LinkedIn or their Facebook or whatever, we reach out to them and then basically see if they're interested or have considered selling or not. If they have, they usually jump on a call with us. We, we you know, introduce ourselves, they introduce our, themselves. And then, you know, it's usually kind of like a question of the price and the timing. Um, and look, I think the best brands out there, they, they are always ready to sell. It just depends on the price. You know, the price is a function of the market, right? If the price is too high and the market is bad, then they might not sell. If the price is, you know, feasible and, and good and the market is like, again, you know, where where the market is right now, you know, look, that you know, there might be a deal there. Look, it's a, it's a bit of an art and a science. Um, and it's ultimately it's a numbers game, right? Like a, you, you, we probably talk to 60 brands in order to acquire one brand. And yeah, we probably talk to another 60 brands to acquire one more brand. So it's, yeah, it's it's kind of a lot of, it's a lot of kissing a lot of frogs, basically, before you meet your prince or your princess. Yeah. Well, it looks like you got a nice, you know, a nice catalog of princes and princesses in your repertoire. So I'm, I'm really impressed with it, Alexi. My last question would be just kind of personally, since you are the expert, what is a brand and uh, and a business model that's that's a um, a good role model for you? Like what 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 sort of brands business model impresses you nowadays? I'm not saying you got to give them a free ad or anything like that. I just am curious. That's a very good question. Look, I would think that brands were really like there is. Have you heard of a cycling brand called Rafa? Okay, well. Europe is it's very big and basically the brand their vision was to make cycling a mainstream sport now cycling used to be a very elitist sport right and so Rafa made it very you know mainstream by making it very sexy making the gear and the you know outfits super cool and like making really building a, an amazing brand and therefore you know if you look at like the cyclists in london in the park literally 50 percent of them have rougher gear which is like crazy uh because it's a very expensive uh brand you have a similar story with lululemon where i've heard of them basically <laughs> Created. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's a great book, right, about uh, Lululemon as well and the story. Obviously, it's for for the founders, actually, quite a. It was kind of like a mixed experience, right? But I guess still, in terms of the brand they created, they really revolutionized the active wear category, and they really created a really top quality yoga brand, which now, of course, evolved into really. Uh, a, a bigger brand and, 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 you know, touching on lots of different categories. So I guess I really like brands who create a certain category and become category winners and then become more mainstream. And that's how we look at, you know, our 96 North brand, for example, right? Like we, we had the number one kind of like organic scent candle brand, right? But like we want to obviously dominate the aromatherapy space and then later on of course we can like expand into other categories as well but you kind of like yeah start niche yeah going back to you the very first question in this podcast 
and then go mainstream. That's great. That's that's a really solid answer. Is there anything you want to plug before we wrap up? No, that it's been great. Look, I mean, really good questions. Uh, I've done many podcasts so far, and you know, you've really you know had a lot of questions I've never answered before. So yeah, thanks so much. That's the goal. I'd hate for you to just come on and be a robot reciting, uh, regurgitating all the answers that you've already given a million times. So Alexia, I just really want to tell you that I appreciate your time. It's been an absolute blast chatting with you. I've learned a lot. Hopefully our listeners have learned a lot. Good luck. Hopefully we'll we'll chat again soon. You've got a lot of great insight and I just really appreciate your time. So thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Have a good one. I want to thank my guest, Alexi Pakovsky, for joining us on the show and to the producer, Micah Quinto, for bringing the show together. Tune in next week when we'll hear from Nigel Thomas, the CEO of Alpha Inbound, as we discuss direct-to-consumer growth marketing. For more information about Alpha Well Brands and Alpha Green, you can check out their websites at alphawellbrands.com and alphagreen.io, as well as their Instagram at alphagreen.io. You can also learn more about New Optima on their website, newoptima.com, that's N-U-O-P-T-I-M-A.com. And to connect with Alexi, you can follow him on Twitter at Alexi Bukowski and on LinkedIn. That's our show. We appreciate you listening, and we hope you tune in for new episodes every Tuesday. Until next time.